welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast. I am your host, Cody McBroom, the CEO of Tailored Coaching Method, a world-renowned online coaching company. This podcast is built to help you create a life by design. That's what the Tailored Life is. It's choosing to blaze your own path, make your own decisions, and create a life you desire. So in this podcast, you're going to learn ways to optimize your body, optimize your mind, optimize your relationships and optimize your business and career this is the podcast for personal development junkies and people who can't stop growing because they strive for more we are also going to bring on experts in every single field to teach you their own expertise so you're not only learning from me four days a week but I'm bringing other professionals in to teach you their principles too so if you love personal development and you constantly want to strive for more in life this is the podcast for you. Make sure you hit subscribe, send this to a friend that needs it, and keep listening to improve your life all around. And without any further ado, let's get into the Tailored Life Podcast. Today, we have a research review with our chief science officer here at Tailored Coaching Method, Dr. Brandon Roberts, and we're going to dive into two specific topics. The cool thing about this is one of them is a, a meta-analysis, which means it is a culmination of a lot of different studies. So taking this huge pool of research and then boiling it down into one specific paper. So we can kind of look at all the studies on this one topic and, and create a good conclusion of it. Um, and the meta-analysis that he reviewed in this one was all about cold and hot therapy to prevent or reduce DOMS, DOMS being delayed onset muscle soreness. So this is the thing where you go train really hard and then a couple days later, you're just terribly sore. Does an ice bath help? Does a cold plunge help? Does a cold shower help? Does a heating pad help? When does it help? Should you do it right after? Should you do it days later? How much does it help? Does it have any negative consequences? Maybe. Uh, so we dive into this and we dive into a bunch of random topics after that, like Wim Hof and cold showers and, and recovery and hypertrophy, um, a ton of different things. It's going to be really, really applicable for anybody who does experience DOMS or has clients who experiences DOMS. And the second study was on a seven day fasting retreat. So we're actually looking at what happens to your body on a physiological level and with fat loss, if any fat loss in a seven day fasting period. So you don't eat for seven full days. It's a long fast. Does that have any benefits? We're going to dive into that and much more today. Uh, as always, we do these research reviews every single month. So if you want to check out the blog and the written version to get the, the graphs and, and Brandon really diving deep into the text version of this, there's a link in the show notes of this podcast to check out the blog. Otherwise, stay tuned, listen up, take some notes. I hope you guys enjoy this. And if you like this podcast, do me a huge favor, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube. You got to check both out wherever you're listening to this. The link for the other channel is going to be in the show notes. So do us a huge favor and hit subscribe and make sure you get notified every time we drop a new episode. Without any further ado, let's get into this research roundup with Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right, dude, let's get into this month's research roundup. Um, you know what? I, I thought about this the other day. Are we calling a research review or research roundup? Because I, I, I feel like I change what I call it every time. I'm not going to say that you change what you call it every time because I might also do that. So <laughs> we're going to call it, I don't know, decide whatever you want. I don't care. I think like... <laughs> I didn't want to call it research review at first because there's so many research reviews, but then I yeah. started noticing the research reviewers put out research roundups, which were their like free versions of research reviewing the research studies that they didn't put in their research review. And so then I think I changed it, but I might've been following you because I might've read you. Yeah. I don't know. One of us is doing it first and then the other one is just following suit, which is fine. Either way, we're, we're going to 
talk about research and we're going to review and round it up. <laughs> and that's all that matters. Last a little bit. Yeah. So um, perfect. So if you're listening to this right now, there's probably a blog version out it either comes out the day before or the day after. I should probably have that formally scheduled, but sorry, listener, I don't. So um, if there's a link in the show notes, it's our, it's go check it out. If not, check the Tailored Coaching blog tomorrow. But either way, the same week that this drops, the blog will drop and it is this in writing. So if you like seeing Brandon articulate the text and the graphs and all those kind of things, um, dive into that, obviously, and you can get that side of it. Um, otherwise, listen to this podcast and we're going to dive into it all. Um, so I'll let you take it away. Give us your first study and then uh, I'll kind of start picking your brain on it, man. Yeah. So the first study is on uh, DOMS and heat and cold therapy. Um, I actually have mad DOMS right now from my training this week. So I was, I was revisiting this article um, and I was like, man, I didn't even use ice or cold or, any, or heat or anything. <laughs> um, but what this is, is basically a big study. So meta-analysis synthesizes and analyzes all the literature around one topic. The more specific, the better. Uh, in this case, it was DOMS, like how do things affect DOMS? Um, and the two interventions were heat or cold therapy. Now, when they analyzed the literature, they were a little bit uh, liberal with their choice of heat and cold therapy because there's everything in here from uh, cold water baths to... Uh, the cryotherapy to like heat saunas, infrared radiation, like there's like everything that classifies as heat or cold is in here, which is good because you kind of get more information into your analysis, but it's bad when you go to your stats or if you just start looking through the studies and realize that, hey, these two things are not alike. You know, when you're comparing putting an ice pack on your quad to being submerged in cryotherapy for 15 minutes at negative 135, it's not quite the same. So that's that. That's a big caveat. Uh, these researchers basically found that if you're going to use cold therapy, and the literature supports this pretty well, I think it's a good standard effect size, uh, that you need to do it in the first 24 hours after you train. Um, so that would mean, you know, if you waited till the next day, or if you waited really until you started feeling DOMS, it probably wouldn't have an effect. Um, so when they looked at heat therapy, um, they found that it didn't really matter when you did it. You could do it right after exercise, so the first 24 hours, or you could do it after 24 hours, and it still had a, a moderate effect. Um, and then when they compared between the two, so heat or cold, there were only like three studies, um, and they were pretty... Uh, well, they were not very similar, we'll say that. And they didn't find any effect. They didn't say that, or they couldn't say that heat or cold are better than one or the other. Um, and when I looked at the, in the studies, I started going through like, you know, just the methods and, and the results of each study. There weren't any that really like switched back and forth. So kind of after I'm reading it and writing this blog, I was like, okay, so maybe in my mind, the first 24 hours you cold and then the next 24 hours are heat. Um, but we don't know that yet. So that's kind of the results of the study. I think, again, um, I had DOMS this week and didn't even think about using any of these. So that tells you how much I, I use them in practice um, or suggest them to other people. What's the, the mechanisms of like what's actually going on on a, on a tissue or a physiological level? Yeah, so when you exercise, 
um, your muscles and body in general, they heat up and then you have blood flow go to whatever you're exercising, usually your full body too, but it, it, it goes away from your stomach out into your muscles. And so your metabolism increases as you train and it kind of facilitates these molecular events, uh, heat shock proteins to get some mitochondria going. Um, and then when you apply heat, the theory, like we don't know this for sure, the theory is that you're prolonging that elevated heat within your body or on your muscles at least. Um, obviously you can't heat like your um, deep leg muscles, but in theory, you're, you're prolonging this heat. So you're allowing blood flow to continuously get into that muscle and some of these molecular events to, to remain occurring after you stop exercising. Okay, so that's the, the heat side. Um, the heat also lets in um, a little bit more calcium. So this activates your pain receptors um, or inactivates your pain receptors. So you don't feel the pain. So DOMS is generally about pain. Now on the cold side, right? Usually when people get injured, the first thing they do, like you sprain your ankle or you pull a muscle, the first thing you do is go for a cold pack, right? And so this is to reduce swelling and it slows your metabolism down so that you, you, your body's reacting slower to very similar molecular events as heat, but just kind of in the opposite direction. Uh, so the idea is that this helps too. Um, we, again, we don't know exactly why or, you know, exactly how much we want to slow these events or elevate them, which is part of the problem when we get into the details of these therapies, hot or cold, it's like, okay, you know, maybe five minutes is great, but eight hours is bad. And you're like, okay, well, that's, you know, somewhere in that range is what these studies are looking at. And it's really hard to tell. So those are the, the underlying mechanisms um, to, that these therapies kind of go off of. I've kind of always thought of like uh, when a joint or more like bone, tendon, ligament, I think cold. And when I think muscle, I think hot, you know. Um, would you say that has, because to me, my, my thought has always been ice, or cold to reduce inflammation. If I have inflammation in joint, it's probably an issue because of an injury. And, and this might be incorrect. And we brought this up like shortly. I think I've heard Dr. Uh, Andy Galpin talk about this for hypertrophy, but like ice baths, reducing inflammation is great for a performance athlete who is going from event to event, but for some, a bodybuilder who wants to build muscle or somebody who is chasing body composition goals, experiencing DOMS, like, is that really the best thing? Because that might slow the, your own body's adaptation process to build muscle. Yeah. So the, one of the main studies in, um, I think there's a cryotherapy and a cold water immersion study that show if your goal is hypertrophy, which, you know, if you're not an athlete, that's probably your goal. Um, yeah. you don't want to use cold therapy, but as you may have seen or even done yourself, like after a lot of sports or practice, athletes go jump in a cold bath. Um, and that shows to kind of attenuate the, the problems that we see with strength and pain, and they can still keep their agility and their mobility, but it helps them get back on the field faster. So that's exactly right. Um, and actually Galpin has a, I think he has a really good YouTube video on that specifically, and he gets pretty deep. I have uh, him coming on on Friday, so I might bring that up. I have so many different topics that I feel like I could just throw at him. So we'll see. Um, but no, that makes sense too. And, and if we look at like bodybuilding, usually your training split kind of allows for some doms because 
it, it's like one of two things. Either A, you're running a high-frequency program, which wouldn't have time for DOMS. But if you have DOMS on a full-body high-frequency program, you're doing too much of one muscle group in each one setting. Um, and if you're following a upper-lower or a bro split or anything like that, you have probably 72 hours before you hit that muscle again, and DOMS should probably be gone. Um, so, so that makes a lot of sense, and I think you can kind of just avoid it, you know, and, and use it for, for a different purpose. But um, what are your thoughts on DOMS as a whole? Like, is from, from my understanding with research, you don't really need to get sore to progress, right? There's no inherent, like, there's not a, a direct causation of, like, uh, muscle damage equals growth, but more so, like, the mechanisms to get to muscle growth might cause some muscle damage, and that might cause soreness. But I've also heard a lot of people who are well-versed in research that are like, yeah, but if you're not getting sore, you're probably just not training hard enough. And then we have the whole idea of like, you're not actually pushing yourself enough to grow, um, which is kind of bro-ish to say, but I don't disagree with, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And like what you, I mean, cause you kind of have a good experience of both, like being in the trenches and also obviously understanding the research really well. Yeah. So I think what I generally tell people is you don't want to always be sore because that, that's bad. Uh, when you're starting training, obviously you're going to be sore, like newbies, uh, even intermediates or after breaks, you're, you're going to be sore and that's totally okay. That's a normal adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to kind of, like you said, pushing yourself, you're also, you probably want to be sore occasionally. Now, if you find that you're doing legs once a week and you're always sore and therefore you only do legs once a week and your legs are never going growing, well, you might want to change up your frequency, intensity, your volume to adapt for that. So you're not always sore so you can do more volume. Um, I think again, we, so DOMS is not necessarily a bad thing in terms of strength or mobility, unless it starts interfering with them. Um, so once you hit a certain level of DOMS, your strength actually decreases like 20, 20%, right? So that means in the gym, less volume, less growth, you know, it's kind of a vicious cycle, especially if you're doing it once a week or once a month. Uh, the other thing we see is every time you switch exercises, especially trained people, there's, so I'll give an example. So if you went from RDLs to kind of like a normal deadlift, you might get some soreness, even though they're similar, you're probably going to get a little soreness and that's okay too. Um, it tends to happen in trained people who are switching big exercises and big muscle groups. Um, I, I think I get it occasionally with deadlifts and anything with an eccentric motion, like a large eccentric with a lot of weight that tends to have a little bit more DOMS induced. Yeah. Um, I, I typically, for whatever reason, I notice this most when I change an exercise variation that has more glutes involved in it, because it's like, I, I always have some kind of squat. I always have some kind of RDL. I always have some kind of leg curl, but every once in a while, if there's a hip thrust or if there's like a sumo deadlift or something that like a different lunge variation like my glutes are just taxed for days. And I hate that because every time I sit, it's like, and I don't give a shit about my glutes getting bigger personally. But um, no, that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think the the eccentric little tip you threw at the end is, is important because I tell people this with cardio all the time. They're like, well, I love running. And I'm like, okay, but just be aware. Like there's a lot of eccentric movement going on there. And that's going to lead to more doms than say a sled or an assault bike, even though you feel so much lactic acid buildup in those exercises that it feels like you're going to be super sore. You're probably not because it's just metabolites are going to disappear and you're going to be fine. Like it's, it's, you're going to accumulate the ability to handle that over time too. Um, so I think that's really important, but I still, I, I still tend to pe- tell people like 
and you can be the judge of this too. I think this is a good gauge of saying like for, for advice is like, you should be experiencing some, not even just Dom specifically, but just like some soreness period. Like you should feel it right. A day or two later. Um, it probably shouldn't be there days later. Right. So you should get sore from your training, but it shouldn't be so sore that the next time you do that session or you train that muscle, you underperform. If you can still perform at your best and you're creating some soreness, I think you've kind of hit that sweet spot. Um, and to me, it's kind of a gauge of when I need to progress something or change an exercise. Because if I, you know, I'm getting a little sore, but it's not discomfort or not harming my performance, but eight weeks into this program, I'm doing a lot of the same exercises and I'm not progressing anymore. I'm not changing the exercise. I'm not getting sore at all. It's like, okay, this might be a sign that like I need to create some novelty. So I'm either changing the set rep scheme. I'm changing the variation of the exercise. I'm changing the exercise completely change something to kind of create and elicit that stimulus again, that causes some of that, that mild soreness. Yeah. I think the, the one caveat to that is recognizing that some people will have DOMS more severe at different points. So the, the spectrum's like 24 to 72 hours and the peak is usually around 48 hours, but you may, especially with like legs and stuff, you may hit that 72 hour mark and not quite be ready. But again, if you're training, you know, Monday and then you're training legs again on like Thursday or Friday, you're generally fine. Um, so yeah, I generally agree with, with those recommendations, just kind of know that there's a little uh, inter-individualness in some training aspects. Would you say for, I mean, I think it's obvious at this point, if you're a fighter, if you're a soccer player, football, anything like that, you're not chasing hypertrophy like people who want to get leaner or bigger are. So if you need to implement ice baths or cold plunge or anything like that to be able to practice safely and perform efficiently, do it. It's obviously something that's going to be beneficial. Would you say for the bodybuilder or the person who has aesthetic goals, maybe scratching that and using the hot therapy because that tends to reduce soreness. But, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if the main mechanism that's causing lack of hypertrophy is blunting inflammation, is the warm therapy going to be a better route because it's not necessarily doing it or is it still having that same effect? Yeah. So I, I think you again, make a good point there. If you're, if your goals are aesthetic, um, and even this, like just this general review that we're doing on this paper, like heat therapy is probably going to be better um, for DOMS, for hypertrophy, like in general, it's just easier. I think the the kind of theoretical mechanisms behind it make a little more sense to me because again, you know, with inflammation, like you need it, but you don't want too much, but you want a little bit, but you know, with heat, you're like allowing that process to occur and facilitating kind of blood flow into the areas. So it's again, helping um, more. So you might actually get more inflammation, but I don't know, that's a bad thing or you may get less. Um, I think that the exact timing and heat therapy has not been um, looked at too closely. So it's almost just letting your, it, it's, it's kind of giving your body a little bit of a boost to do what it's already trying to do. Yeah, yeah. And that, now, it. yeah, and that was, like, I didn't really, I, again, being a muscle guy, it's not something I've ever really thought of. Um, going back to your athlete comment, sometimes when you're practicing in the heat, like ice baths can do like a double whammy, right? So you get your adaptations to um, your thermal regulation are better and you can recover better. Um, so that if, if you're an athlete training in the heat, that might be another good option. 
Yeah. I think the good thing about the whole uh, heat therapy too, is that it's not miserable. <laughs> like, yeah. So it yeah. actually, I don't mind putting a heating pad on, <laughs> you know, it's not a bad thing. Um, okay, cool. So that makes a lot of sense. I, I do have a couple of random questions that come to my mind when we start talking about this stuff. And the first one is like cold showers. I've been doing the cold shower. We've been doing the, the tailored 30 life challenge uh, in Taylor life 30 day challenge. And people are like, I've had so many questions of like, why a cold shower? Why are you doing this? And I think some people in, in Jordan side had a video that was hilarious. Somebody asked him a question that said, well, cold showers help me lose more fat. And he just stared at the camera like, no. And it was like, cause it was like a minute long of him just staring and it was getting closer to his face. It's so funny. But, but I always tell people, people are always expecting me to be like, give some scientific explanation or like talk about Wim Hof or something. And I'm like, it's just fucking hard mentally. And I don't want to turn the shower on cold. But when I do, I'm mentally more resilient as like hardcore as that sounds like it just makes other things life easier. It's kind of just a mental boost. Like you, it's just a win for the day. Like I accomplished something I didn't want to accomplish, but I am curious because people always ask me, uh, what do you know about cold showers? Is there any science behind it? And like the Wim Hof and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of claims of all these different things it does. I'm unaware of any evidence, not because I don't think there is necessarily, but just because I haven't taken the time to actually look into it i don't care enough to be honest with you but people ask all the time yeah um i have not i've not read any papers on cold showers um but i can kind of like if we think about it um it would have to be some kind of central effect because when you get in the shower i mean you don't hit every component of your body right so it's not going to be like you know i hit my legs and my back and everything at the same time um but i I will put that on my on my list. I'm I'm not also aware of any research on it too much, but I'll I'll look I'll look into it. Well, so and you know, like because I've heard that too is like, oh, it's a central nervous system thing, and I, and I'm like, okay, I could see that. But then the other part of me goes, when I turn the shower on cold, I immediately go into a full body flex. Like I'm literally like squeezing and I'm like tense and I'm saying fuck fuck fuck. So part of me's like, there's no way that's calming my nervous system down, right? And I've read stuff about like you know a good way to get better sleep to to drop cortisol and calm your nervous system down is actually take a really warm shower and then immediately bundle in a blanket. So it's like, well, if that's going to help me calm down and go to sleep, I don't think a cold shower is going to. That's why I don't take it right before I go to sleep <laughs> because I do it right when I get home from the gym and after work and stuff. I just like 30 seconds to a minute, two minutes at most, like just cold. But, um, but yeah, I, I've, heard, I've heard the central nervous system thing and I don't, I don't, I don't buy into it to it a ton just because personally I don't see that happening yeah I'm, I'm highly skeptical of it doing anything I will say that I, I'm, I'm like my null is yeah no it's not gonna do anything okay um, so well Wim Hof has become famous for it so but I think he does like I mean he goes and like sits next to an igloo or I mean a, a glacier <laughs> in the ice cold like it's it's impressive that shit is wild but um the other question I had based on everything we're talking about is not necessarily a question I have, but I think that's like pertinent to the listeners is just kind of uh, almost like the evidence-based hierarchy I've heard people talk about, but essentially like uh, a meta-analysis. We've, we've said it before, but maybe like, you know, what a meta-analysis is compared to a regular study, what it takes to create a meta-analysis. So like how many studies do you need before you can actually even put together a meta-analysis and how do you know what's better. Cause I know for me, when I first learned about a meta-analysis, I was just like, Oh, well, I don't even need to look at studies. I'll just look at the meta-analysis cause that's going to be the cream of the crop. And then I've heard arguments against that. Like, well, it's not that 
simple or it's not exactly that case all the time, but I'd love for you to kind of explain that to the listener. Yeah, so I've, I've published a couple of meta-analyses and they're very tricky because your inclusion and exclusion criteria. So what you're looking at to collect studies dictates the answers to your questions and even what questions you can ask. So a great example is in this current meta-analysis, there's one study on older adults, right? Why is that in there? It doesn't actually do anything to the analysis. Like they could have excluded that um, in their exclusion criteria before they even started and it would have been fine, but they didn't know going in if there were gonna be a ton of them or not a ton. So there's also an, a component of expertise in the area of the field, right? So generally, you know, you'll see meta-analyses on hypertrophy from various authors, but Schoenfeld's usually one of them. And so you have to have someone with a good bit of expertise um, in certain places, or you don't have to, but you, it looks better and usually turns out better if you do. Um, so basically in meta-analyses, you identify keywords, and then you throw them into a couple different uh, search engines, right? Not Google, but like uh, scientific search engines. And then it dumps a ton of studies at you. Like average meta-analysis probably gets like 500 to 1,000 studies, depending on your topic. So you have to sift through them all, figure out what's relevant, what's not, based on what you said at the beginning, like exclusion, inclusion. And then you have to extract data, right? So you're taking the differences in this case, um, between hot therapy and the control. And the control could be them sitting there. Some of these studies, the control is them foam rolling. Some of these studies, the control is them like getting uh, self massage or something, you know, just some kind of active control where you can see how those might influence the changes that are occurring to benefit the control more or the therapy more. Uh, so there are, all, there are all these little nuances and honestly, to really understand a good amount of analysis, you have to go through and look at every study in it. Um, so when I review papers, so I probably get at least one meta-analysis a month, um, I have to go through and read every single paper and make sure it fits their inclusion exclusion criteria, make sure that they extracted the data correctly, make sure that they are using the correct statistical analysis for um, the number of studies that are in there. So all these factors, right? And next month, I've already picked this out. So here's a teaser. Next month, we're going to look at two meta-analyses on training to failure and non-failure and why they came to completely different conclusions. So um, we'll talk about it more then, not to bog the, the listeners down. How long does that process take to create uh, I guess so, I assumed it was a more automated process, to be honest with you. Like, all right, well click this button and it's going to filter all these for us. And, but no, yeah. I'm like, that's, it's that simple. No, honestly, it's not that much different than a real study in terms of time commitment, like ease. It's a lot easier to do because I don't have to recruit subjects. I don't have to collect data. I don't have to worry about people showing up. Yeah. Um, but time frame, like if I have to read 500 abstracts and then go back and look through the references to make sure we didn't miss anything and then double check all of our data, like, it takes a solid year to do a good meta analysis. Yeah, that's a long, long time. Yeah. Damn. Well, um, I think that's helpful for the listeners, though, because then they can kind of understand what it is and, and what to look for. Um, obviously, I think it, I always say this, but listening to stuff like this, checking out research reviews, uh, Brandon writes for Weightology, I think it's .net, not .com. Um, 
I believe, or am I incorrect? You I know? don't. I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> I not net. Um, and uh, and obviously, I always recommend Mass Research Review. But um, there's a lot of things that I think are. It's important to be a part. If you're a coach, I think it's important to be listening to stuff like this or be a part of one of those because there's a lot of this stuff that it's not in textbooks yet because it's coming out now and it's not in sim kind of would you muscle and strength pyramids that's not a textbook phallus for that's not a textbook technically but it's definitely not like a normal book you know yeah let's call it that i would so okay so muscle and strength pyramids i would use those and have used them in my exercise physiology courses i teach um and i've talked to eric about this but like they're really good examples of like this is like lay speech and this is the you know the Schoenfeld textbook on muscle hypertrophy and there's subtle differences, right? And we're scientists, especially in fitness realm are getting better about communicating their findings and teaching yeah. things. But yeah, there's this kind of like hybrid where you're like, uh, mm, I'm not sure what that is. It's both. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the, the thing for me is always, especially with the research reviews is like, uh, like it comes out monthly for most of these people and it comes out monthly for us. And it's like, okay, let's look at what's coming out right now. What's, what's relevant to the person and talk about it now. It'll be in a textbook in two years or three years or whatever, you know what I mean? And that's even if you're going to school for this stuff and a lot of people aren't, they're coach people. So, um, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's not rant any further and get to the second study though. Cause I, I want to dive into that one while we still have some time. Okay. So the second study is on fasting. Um, and basically what this study did was this an observational study, which means you're just like taking measurements and watching people. You're not doing anything to them. Um, so this is where a lot of research starts where like scientists observe something and then they make a hypothesis and they do an intervention and, you know, the whole scientific method thing. Um, so this study was done at a retreat. And if you look up this retreat, it's in Switzerland and I can't say it like the name, I can't pronounce the name, um, but it looks like swank it looks nice um and so they they did the study where they had participants that were going to this fasting center for um a week some of them went longer but a week most of them there were there for a week they took baseline measures so they took some blood they took body comp they took um, a couple other things at the start after and then again at the seven day mark so the end of their like retreat week and then they followed up with them 60 days days later um, and what they found, as you can imagine, when you're fasting, you lose body weight. So they lost like, I don't know, I think it was like four or five kilos. Um, yeah, so six to nine pounds, somewhere in there. Um, and most of that was fat-free mass. So not muscle mass, but the glycogen that's in your muscles and in water. your liver. Yeah, water. Um, and so, you know, that's not kind of anything novel, like combat athletes, fighters do that all the time. They'll drop weight, powerlifters do it, they'll drop weight. Um, and then they followed up with them 60 days later. And one of the kind of more interesting findings was that 60 days later, they had actually lost fat mass, even though they didn't lose it during their re retreat. So that kind of tells me that this was either a kind of booster shot in their health so it was like, hey, you need to get back on, on track. Or this was the start of their journey um, where like, hey, I'm going to go to this retreat then I'm going to get my diet right. I'm going to feel great. And I'm going to make all these lifestyle changes. And they didn't track any of that. So I'm just speculating, but that's probably what happened. Um, go ahead. No, you're fine. Go ahead. 
right. Uh, so when they looked at blood measurements, they had glucose, uh, triglycerides, so HDL, LDL, um, and then IGF-1. This is what I was and, about to ask about. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, the, when the participants started, like their blood glucose was pretty low. Like it was very normal. If you just look at their blood glucose, you're like, oh, these people are pretty healthy. Um, when in fact they were uh, overweight to obese, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but during the, the course of the study, obviously, if you're not eating, your blood glucose drops. And then 60 days later, it's right back where it was. So again, that makes sense. Um, triglycerides didn't really change much. Um, they had a weird decrease in IGF-1, which, so during the fasting period, that rebounded and, and elevated to baseline, uh, which we've seen in physique athletes when they lose weight. And so I'm pretty sure it's an indicator of just nutritional status in this, in this respect, at least, where it's like your IGF drops because you're not eating. Okay, I was gonna say during the fast it dropped, and when they started feeding again, it went back up. Yeah, which yeah. is ironic because I mean it's not ironic; it's obvious, but it's funny because I remember. I mean, there was even like a product or a book called Anabolic Fasting. I don't know who the author is, and even if I did, I wouldn't put them on blast like that. But it's just like, dude, that is, that is literally the most oxymoron of a title I've ever. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> anabolic fasting. I mean, when you're fasting, you're catabolic. Technically, it's not that you can't build muscle if you do intermittent fasting, but those are definitely not the same thing. Um, but there was yeah. a claim that like intermittent fasting and the lean gains approach like increased growth hormone in people. And I remember people hearing that and, it, and I always just wondered like, there's no research cited whenever people talk about this, like where is there evidence to show this? And it wouldn't make sense in theory because when we eat, we are creating an anabolic environment for our body. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that too. And I'm just, the the hormone stuff outside of, you know, drugs and stuff is just kind of like not very relevant um, to most people. I'll say that much. So the last thing, and I wanted to bring, I put this in the blog because people love to talk about inflammation and we've talked about it briefly, a couple different blogs and, and uh, podcasts before, but one of the main um, indicators of systemic inflammation, like, like, Hey, I'm diseased. I have inflammation in my body is this C-reactive protein. So it's CRP. It's probably the most common indicator. So people with diabetes often have elevated inflammation indicated by elevated CRP. Great, or not great, but it's very consistent. And when you look at other markers, they're not as consistent. So this is the one that generally increases the most and is the best one to detect in the lab. So day one, CRP is pretty low. I mean, it's not anything special. Day seven, it's like, doubles or triples, which really confused me when I started looking at it. I was like, wait a second. So they're not eating and they're inflamed. Huh? So I did a bunch of digging through the literature and it's all written up in the blog, but basically this happens in a lot of different fasting um, situations and experiments and nobody knows why. It's just like they get super high inflammation and then it goes away. Um, and that's exactly what happened here because by day 60, it was gone. So they hadn't been fasting for a couple of weeks by then, but dropped back down to baseline. Um, one of the problems or theories behind inflammation being bad, especially the CRP, is that it messes with your insulin sensitivity. So it acts downstream 
of insulin through the little jargony, but uh, JNK slash MAPK pathways. And it kind of blocks those from occurring or activating. And so you get this issue with insulin and glucose. Um, not necessarily relevant here, but I kind of went down a rabbit hole because I was curious. I think you already said this, but just to clarify, they went through the fasting period and then they followed up with these people 60 days later when they were eating. During that 60 day period, it was just go back to your lifestyle. It wasn't like follow this diet. Yeah, it was just go back to your lifestyle. Like you came for a week, you had a retreat for fasting and then you went home. So this is another funny thing. One of the big claims about fasting is that it will reduce inflammation. And I always hear people talking about like fasting is great if you want to reduce inflammation. Um, my thought with this with fasting in general, I've always said, like, if you have a really stressful lifestyle, it's probably not the best choice because we know that it might raise cortisol even higher. But do you think that has anything to do with this? Like this, the fasting was actually a stressor on their body and that created systemic inflammation that reaching maybe. And I haven't, when I was looking, I didn't see any literature like with cortisol and CRP together. Cause then you could say, all right, they're both going up. Maybe they're related. Um, so possibly i they do act on similar pathways when you get downstream so i I could see that having an effect but i'm not sure got it um yeah it's so funny man because i always think like uh, i was i was uh i was on a consultation yesterday i told this guy this like the more research comes out the longer you coach it almost gets harder to coach effectively not uh, because we know more because you know even when like i remember like years ago when like a refeed was like new it was it was something like so cool and beneficial that it was an, an easy selling point as to why this diet was going to be different and then you kind of learn oh it's really not doing that much and like the more and more research coming out like the more and more we realize that eh, just doesn't, eh, doesn't really do much like intermittent fasting is another example of like all these claims it's like nah not really nah not really um it's basically just a way to control calories now I do like the point you made initially, like seven days is a long time. Um, I mean, you've, you gotta be committed to that. I couldn't do it, but even like a one day fast, you know, or a two day fast, like I can definitely see that being like, this is my reset. You know, like some people feel like I've heard people say like, it's, I use it as like a detox and, and I don't know if you're necessarily detoxing yourself, but you're definitely, I mean, if bowel movements continue, you're definitely kind of emptying things out. You're, you're drinking a lot of water, flush and fluids, and you're probably going to feel leaner, lighter, less bloated. Um, you're going to be hungry at the end of it, but you're probably going to feel reset or detox by the end of it. And if that mentally triggers you to start good habits and follow a diet, then I'm all for it. Like I've even had a client, like she, she wanted to go through a detox and, uh, and I was like, let's do it. Like I'm totally for it because I knew that's what she needed mentally. I knew it wasn't going to do anything. When I put the brakes on, it was like the third time she was like, I think I need to do another. And I was like, Hey, like, I'm like, no more. Like it's, it's not doing what we think it's doing. And if it's a cyclical thing that you use as like a, a crutch to kickstart again, that's where we have, we have different issues we have to solve. You know, if, if you do it once before starting a journey, that's totally different. And I think that's great. Um, I think where people, where I get frustrated is where people turn it intermittent fasting into, into pseudoscience, right? It's not pseudoscience because it's well-studied, but it is pseudoscience when you make claims that it increases IGF-1 and when it, it reduces inflammation, when we, apparently there's research that shows the complete opposite, you know, now you're just making false claims. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's when 
it's a fine line. Like it's a gray area. You, you have some evidence to support something, but you just push like 10 steps past it. Not even just like one, like sometimes we can step one or two steps and be like, okay, well, we can kind of speculate this. But when you're like on the other side of the room, I'm just like, no, please stop. Um, but you know, it, it's understandable. I think as long, and I'm sure that, you know, with your client, you didn't do this, but as long as you're not trying any of like the, the weird, like juice things are, are ingesting something that you don't know what's in it necessarily, like that can be bad, but we, yeah. we don't do that. So it's so funny, man. Cause I'm, I'm like overly cautious about all these things. Cause my wife was like, Hey, I think I want to get a juicer. And I was like, why do you want to get a juicer? Don't go on with it. And I just like immediately got defensive of like, that's not the answer. And she's like, because Blakely hates eating breakfast. I'm trying to get her more fruits. And I'm like, oh, fucking love it. Let's get a juicer because yeah. my daughter loves protein pancakes and things like that. But it's like, when you give her some fruit, she's like, nah, it's vitamins. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, let's get a juicer. They're actually doing it this morning. But it's just funny because my first response was like, that's not a sustainable diet approach, Shannon. And she's like, I'm not trying to diet. What the hell? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, do, I do a similar thing. I, I, I've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. All right. Uh, is there any uh, conclusion you missed on that last one? Is there any, any pointers you want to throw out of the, or I mean, of either of them, but obviously that last one, especially? Um, I don't think so. I, I, you know, just understanding some of these concepts for people who are listening is, is the goal. You know, we don't always have to make like big claims or, or say, you know, hey, do this or don't do that. Um, in the blog and on Instagram this week, I covered autophagy a little bit. And so you might see that come up. Um, but I think in terms of fasting and autophagy, um, a lot of that science is in caloric restriction, lifespan extension, and it's all done in animals and cell culture and, and other models that are not human. Um, so we have to be really careful where we go with like Fasting causes autophagy, causes good health, right? Well, there's some link there, but we're not really clear like how it's all linked or what exactly you need to do to get the benefits. So just kind of like a word of cautious. Quick, quick definition of autophagy, just for people listening. And then also, um, I, you kind of just said this, but that's, that's another big claim of a lot of fasting proponents of like it is autophagy, it helps or, or increase in autophagy. But um, Dude, is there a lot of studies that show this exact same thing in a caloric restricted diet? Like somebody goes on a healthy diet and loses weight, they see autophagy as well. Yeah. Um, so not necessarily. Kind of. Let me let me back up and start with just a simple definition. So, autophagy is just a cellular process responsible for degrading errors in proteins. So that can be like a protein misfolds. It happens all the time. So it comes in, eats it essentially and, and destroys it. Um, it could be because, you know, you have certain organelles that are kind of like been around for a while and they need to be degraded and replaced. So autophagy can kind of take those down and you can get new cells or new components of cells to just maintain homeostasis. Um, so there is a kind of a, a very large field of research on caloric restriction and lifespan extension and actually people who practice it. And one of the mechanisms that's come up through the animal models of lifespan extension is this autophagy because it is increased during caloric restriction and fasting. Uh, but we don't know for sure that they're necessarily connected. Um, so in kind of these 
mechanistic studies, what we can do is we can block something. So like we could block autophagy with a, a drug or molecular device or something. And we can then have people, not people, we can have rodents do caloric restriction or fasting. And then if we see the same benefits, we can say, okay, it's not due to autophagy. But if we don't see the benefits, we can say, okay, well, autophagy plays a role in that somewhere. Now we got to figure out where. So we're in the phase of it plays a role somewhere. We are still figuring out how and where. This is why I think it, it's, I don't necessarily, this is a problem. It's not wrong to say that it could create or help this, but like when people are screaming, fasting for autophagy from the top of rooftop that's where i get like kind of irritated because i'm like it's almost like for people that say you almost have to be careful if anybody is like really 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 uh promoting one specific benefit like more than anything else you always have to put up a red flag and go okay like let's see this because i mean if these research reviews tell you anything there's always and it depends there's always a real like well it's kind of a gray area or it's in the middle um or we think so, but we don't know completely yet because we're still, you know what I mean? And I think that's like so important for the people who aren't coaches listening um, and coaches who are listening, like do your research, don't grab onto any one thing and just run with it as hard as you can, because it's not always the case and you don't want to get in trouble saying the wrong thing or, or known as the person that does that. And you're hopping from topic to topic, you know, it's just not a good look. Um, yeah. But good. Dope. I think that was a good research roundup or review or whatever we want to call it. And I think that uh, it's pretty damn applicable. I know for me, I'm actually probably going to start using heat pads because why not? Like it's, I'm yeah. sore some days and if, and like, if it helps, it helps. But I definitely uh, actually, if these cold showers are hurting my hypertrophy, maybe that's a good reason to stop them. <laughs> Don't tell the team. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep doing them. God damn it. All right. That's a wrap. We'll catch you guys next time.